Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 43 of the Corona Diaries. And we went through a milestone last week and we didn't actually recognise it. <laughs> drove through one. <laughs> we, dro- we, dro- we drove full pelt <laughs> through a milestone. And that is that in my version of the diaries, we actually got to halfway through the first book last week. Did we? Yeah, we are, we are halfway. So 42 episodes gets us halfway through a diary. So if we're going to do both diaries, we can safely say we're going to get to a 160-odd episodes. <laughs> Is that episodes or years old? I don't know. There's genuine fear in Panther's 21 eyes here. Uh, um, Lynetta thinks I'm going to live to be 160. I keep trying to explain it's unlikely. <laughs> How, when she says that, does she say it in a joyous way or is there a look of resignation on her face? I can't possibly comment. Possibly comment. Yeah, okay. Right. So halfway through, we're halfway through volume one and it's taken us 42 episodes to get there. Oh, well, there we are. Who'd have thought it would are. take that long? It's slow going, yeah. this diary. Really. It, is sl- it is slow going. It is slow going, That's isn't it? why when people used to say to me, why don't you do an audio book? I go, well, I've had a go. I've got a feeling yeah. it might take years. How do these people do it? What, what is, I don't know. You know, how does Stephen Fry do it? How does he do anything? Know. Anyway, never mind. Mm. He's been to Cambridge. That's That's probably what it is. Before we get going, I want to shout out to uh, Celia, Christine, Sarah, Linda, Julie and Jeff, Paul, Shane, Hmm. another Jeff, different spelling, Hmm. and Ivor. And the reason why I want to shout out to to that little group is that um, they're all purple patrons. Um, But they're also people that follow me on Patreon as well. And we had a bit of a Zoom call last night. Oh. And a bit of a natter, yeah. and we did. And it was, do you know what? It was quite, it was quite funny and quite amusing. Mm. Uh, what a good bunch, aren't they? Yeah, a great bunch, a great mm. bunch. So they all joined in from different places. Um, I, th- I think three of them were from phone dialed in from the US, um, and Sylvia dialed in from from Germany, and the rest from the UK. So we had quite a nice natter. So I thought I'd shout them out and just say, "Lovely natter last night. Looking forward to doing it again." Mm. So and, and and Christine was <laughs> our Christine. Uh, Christine. Yeah, and Linda was Lobster Linda. So um, (laughs) you you get the vibe who I'm talking about. So there we are. Um, Anyway, this week, what we thought we'd do is talk a little bit about um, the actual detailed makeup of a day on tour. Because the diaries covered loads of tour recently. 
and we keep mentioning things, or it keeps mentioning things like sound checks and checking the lines and all manner of things. And some of those things just fly by me, and I'm not quite sure what they mean. So I thought we'd actually talk about a day in a bit more detail. So typical day on the road for you, I guess, starts with you arriving somewhere new. Yes, depends where you want to start in the day. Um, I guess if if I just think back to the most recent tour, um, the start of a day is the point at which you think, I can't lie on this shelf any longer. And that that, that varies. That can be at any time from 6am to, to like 2 in the afternoon, <laughs> depending upon you know, uh, what time you you climbed onto the shelf in the first place. But um, that that's when you're on a, you know, a proper shiny tour bus and you're, you're doing overnighters and sleeping and everything. Um, regarding the, the, the diary, on that particular tour, and probably why we vowed not to do it ever again, um, our, our genius manager, John Arneson, rather than hire a proper mode of transport for the band to get around had kind of done a side deal with some mate of his who'd, pro- who'd, who'd provided him with a minibus that kept exploding and exploded from the moment it arrived in Europe and exploded all the way around Europe kept breaking down, belching oil things kept falling off it and poor old Nick Belcher had to try and deal with it all while the band just went, what's going on there? what's going on, Nick, like it was his fault, which it wasn't. Um, so in those days, a typical day, I guess, would start with checking out of a hotel somewhere and climbing into this, what we called the hot dog van, um, which <laughs> gave you an idea of how much love we had for it. Um, in fact, at one, in fact, we did go around Europe at one point in one, and Privet Hedjar's sound man decorated it with gaffer tape, and 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 act, it actually said Stavros hot dogs on the side. They're runny but yummy, um, <laughs> and we went all over Europe in that. Um, <laughs> it might have been that one. Um, so more recently, we we don't go near many bosses if we can, if we can help it. Um, we 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 go on uh, on proper tour buses. So a, a a day involves either getting up and getting in a bus and driving for hours to another part of the world or another city, or it involves waking up, falling off the shelf, going downstairs. Uh, trying to work out why the coffee machine doesn't work because it never does because somebody's either run it out of beans or water or something. Um, Mosley's the only one who knows how to work the coffee machine. (laughs) So sometimes I have to wait till he gets up to get a cup of coffee because he knows which of these funny little DeLonghi trays you've got to pull out and unscrew to make the bloody thing happy. So it'll serve you a cup of coffee. So anyway, if you're in luck and the machine's actually working, which is about one in ten mornings, um, then I make myself a coffee um, and I sit, you know, I open a blind and I sit and I I have a look out at where we are and we're we're either still travelling 
always sat in a truck stop somewhere um, while the driver sleeps because the drivers uh, are only allowed to drive for so long and then they have mm. to sleep. So sometimes you'll just be in a truck stop, uh, literally in limbo, and you look you look out and, you you know, sometimes there's a dodgy cafe and sometimes there isn't. Um, and you just sort of sit around and wait. Um, sometimes there'll be other members of the the band or crew already out of bed, so you'd have a natter with them. Or, or, or quite often I would get up and I'd be on my own. Um, so I just stare into space for a bit, try and find the stuff I've lost the day before. Uh, that That's usually a ritual. <laughs> <laughs> try and quell the panic uh, in my breast as I realise my phone's gone or I've only got one glove or something like that. Um, try and work out what I did with my coat. Um, there's never anywhere to put coats on tour buses. And and sometimes it can be like 16 or 17 guys on a tour bus. And so when they're all asleep, there's just coats and bags everywhere. You know, just an explosion of... It's very similar to a submarine, a tour bus. Um, in, in, in so much as it's just full of people in a confined space and all their stuff is all over the place and you end up clambering over it a bit. Um, so anyway, I guess I'm digressing a little. So so from about nine o'clock in the morning on a show day, the crew will be off the bus. You'll be outside the venue. The crew will be off the bus. And if you're still on the shelf at that point, you'll lie there listening to the banging and clanging of, of articulated truck doors opening and, and, you know, aluminium box sections clanging as, as they're, they're hauled out. The first thing to go into the venue normally, everywhere except Italy, <laughs> is, um, is, is the lighting rig. Right. The lights go in first and the lighting rig is usually assembled on the floor, on the sta- either on the floor or on the stage. It's screwed together um, in whichever format it will fit into the, the building you're playing. If it's a great big building, the, the crew are all really happy because with a great big building, they can back the trucks all the way up to the stage. Yeah. And then they can build whatever they need to build, you know, unencumbered by four walls. But if it's only a theatre or, or, God forbid, a little club, then the lighting rig has to be screwed together, you know, leaving half of it out. Half the sections are, are left out and it has, it, it has to be reduced to a much smaller uh, structure. That takes a while. Then the lights are all attached to it, and then it's hauled into the um, into the air until it's above the stage, and the stage is clear. At that point, the band's equipment can go in. So until then, the band band equipment remains in flight cases, and the uh, the, the stage crew, our own, you know, everyone except the lighting crew, um, are kind of just hanging about. Yeah. Um, the PA will be going in probably about the same time, so they'll be building 
the big PA either side of stage and plus dotted about the, the hall if it's a big <coughs> hall. And um, they'll, you know, they'll probably, again, depending where we are, various different things happen. Whenever we play Manchester Academy, I know there's a little cafe down the road that does bacon rolls and I go down the... I go down, it's a little ritual now, I go down the road to, and I buy about 20 bacon rolls and I take them back and give them to the crew uh, while they're working because um, they're, they're too busy to, to stop and eat a lot of the time. Um, so anyway, the, light, the lighting rigs up in the air, the, the, um, the, the PA's being built and then, and then last, last to come out of the cases is the the band's equipment you know the key the keyboards the keyboard rack the guitar um amplifiers the drum kit which which is set up on a riser which needs to be built as well um and uh that that goes in last of all and then of course it's all connected up and while all that's happening the band is either still on the bus still asleep or um, mooching around the town. Pete Travis is usually mooching around the town. Mark Kelly is usually running around the town. He gets he gets out of bed and goes running wherever we are. Um, he's a fiend for the running. Mosley would still be on the shelf asleep because Mosley's probably just gone to bed at that point. Um having stayed up all night either reading or talking or staring or talking to the bus driver. Um, and I, I might be doing any of the above apart from running. Right. Um, and uh, I might be mooching around the town. I might be still on the shelf. I might be in a calf. Or I might be in the gig watching the, watching the crew doing what they do. Mm. Once the PA is up and connected to the out front mixing desk, um, which is connected via a thing called a multi-core, which is a big, big sort of hose pipey kind of mm. thing, a long thing on a reel that costs a fortune, uh, full of wires. That, that, that connects from the stage to the mixing desk out front that Phil is behind. And once that's connected up, then the out front sound engineer will commence EQing the hall, which means that he'll put a really good sounding record on, usually that Donald Fagan one or that Tears for Fears. Yeah, uh, something that's been well... Some, something that's well well, really well recorded and produced and really crystalline and clear. He'll put that on... And he will stand there and listen to it. And what happens is that... I mean, when you stand in any room and listen to sound, as much as 50% of what you hear is not the sound, it's the room. Yeah. You hear this because the, the sound bounces off the walls. Bounces off the walls. And completely colours uh, what you hear. And so the out-front sound man... Um, his first job is to try and compensate for what the room is doing to the sound. And he does that with EQ, which is, when I say EQ, most people will know what I mean, but the people who don't know what I mean, um, 
the, the, there's a like um, the sound frequencies, uh, really low sound frequencies are boomy and bassy, and really high ones are tissy and hissy. And sound audible sound typically goes from twenty cycles per second to twenty thousand cycles per second. But most people can only hear from about 60 cycles per second up to about 12,000, 12K. And so the sound man has a, a machine which can adjust little bands of all of those frequencies all the way from bass up to treble and he can... He can turn turn those frequencies down and nothing else, or he can he can um, turn up the gain on those frequencies and make them louder. So he does that until he's happy. Some people do it with um, machines. They have frequency analyzers which give them a little little graphic readout of what's going on in the room. Other people just prefer to use their ears. Um, and and decide when it sounds good themselves. I think I think Phil does a bit of both, but generally speaking, if it sounds good, it's good, and if it doesn't, it isn't. No matter what the machines say, so you've got to use your judgment. So he'll be doing that quite often. I'll be lying on my bunk, and I'll suddenly hear the the thumpy, boomy sounds of women in chains starting up in the in the hall next door. And I'll know that Phil's got the PI up and running. Yeah. So it's a way of knowing roughly how far you are through the day without even looking at your watch. Yeah. Um, and you guys still use an analogue mixing desk, don't you? Phil swears by them. He doesn't like digital. Um, yeah. We use, um, we use a, an enormous Midas mixing desk because that's what Phil knows and understands, but it's also what he... he person he thinks they sound better yeah he thinks they're warmer and the problem with digital i mean obviously it's getting better every year um as they work on it and and you know research and development that new digital systems are getting better and better and better but um the problem tends to be with them that if you put one thing through a digital mixing desk, it sounds fantastic, and then you add yeah. another thing, and you add another thing, and you add another thing. And by the time you've got 64 things that it's summing together, it starts to not sound as good, uh, whereas analogue desks just do. Um, and they're, you know, they're probably going to fix that. They, they might have fixed it already. But but Phil prefers um, an analog desk, and so whenever we can use one, you know, we we carry our own when we're on the road. Um, when we can't carry our own, we try and get one. You know, if we're in America, for instance, we try and get one brought in. Nobody wants to do it because they're huge and heavy, and all the local crew hate them because they're they're really, they're really big and heavy and hard to move around. Uh, but we try and use them wherever we possibly can. And when we can't get one, Phil's in a bad mood all day because right. uh, he hates digital desks. Um, but there we are. Um, so that happens. And in in terms of, you know, my perspective, I've 
got from whenever I fall out of bed in the morning until about four in the afternoon to myself to do whatever I choose, whether that's sleep if I'm exhausted, which I often am, uh, or whether it's to go and find a calf and stare into space and and maybe write the diary or read a book and be, tra- be tragic and artistic, uh, which I occasionally am. Um, I've got until about four in the afternoon to do that and at four in the afternoon we have to be in the building. Sometimes we will eat at that point. We'll go up to catering because we, we sometimes, not always, but sometimes carry catering with us. So there'll be a, a, a couple of chefs and ovens. Um, that'll all be in the truck as well. And they'll, they'll set those up first thing in the morning and, and principally to feed the crew, but, but the band are allowed to eat too. Um so we, we, we'll go into catering and, and, and maybe grab a bite to eat at four. And at some point between four and five, um, they tend to start with me. Phil likes to start with me. He like, um, because as soon as Ian starts bashing on the kit and Pete starts rumbling about on the bass, um, an element of chaos starts to occur. <laughs> because they enjoy themselves, which, of course, is the last thing they should be doing. And um, so Phil likes to start with me. So I will, I, I will basically screw these pods into my ears that, that, that are moulded to the shape of my ears and plugged into a little radio pack that I'm wearing uh, on, on, my, on my belt uh, behind me. Um, that's that gives me what I'm going to hear for the show. Mm. Now there's another guy called Nick Todd, um, who, well, Nick Todd, recently I think back in those days there was a guy called Grubby, and um, <laughs> Grubby John McCallis he was called, or John Callis, Grubby John. He, I think he does monitors for McCartney now. I mean, all our crew. Drive around in Rolls Royces now. All the guys who were, <laughs> <laughs> who were working for us back then, um, and um, so whoever's doing monitors, it's their job. They've got a great big desk at the side of stage, which is is actually bigger than the out front desk, because what they have to do with that is they have to take all the information that comes from the stage and mix it into five separate mixes because each member of the band has his own mix of everything Mm. that's going on. So the monitor man has a job which is, you could argue, is is the same as the out front guy times five, uh, which is a tough gig, you know, um, because that's a, a lot of stuff to have going on in you in your head and a lot of decisions to make and a lot of pe- people to keep happy, some of whom might be screaming in your face during a gig um, and threatening you with death. So you have to have a very good attitude to be a monitor man and you have to be aware of the fact that at some point in your career, possibly every night, uh, you know, m- the singer will be physically 
throwing a mic stand at you or, or trying to strangle you um, if he's not happy. Because singers think it's very important that they're happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the, it's their job to carry the entire show for the crowd. Or well, that's that's what a singer will tell you because they're all egomaniacs. But I think to some extent it's true. I, I think there's all there's a tendency for a crowd to focus on a singer. That means that if it's going wrong for the singer, it's kind of dampening the atmosphere for everyone. Yeah. Um, and so in, in, in that sense, uh, as I've occasionally said before, I feel that I am the conduit through which the spirit passes from, from the band to the crowd and back from the crowd through me again to, to, to the band almost, you know. And that's a, that's, a, that's a spiral up or down, you know. If it's going down, we, we pass it back at two and it goes down together. If it's going up, we pass it back in two. Um, so what's actually going on on stage is each drum that Ian hits has, a, has an individual microphone attached to it. So the kick drum will, will have a microphone which is fed into a... A cable. Um, each drum has a microphone fed into cables, and then there's two overhead mics just to catch the general ambience of the top kit. So there might be there might be as many as twelve or fourteen um, lines of audio coming from the drum kit alone, which goes to the monitor desk and goes to the out front desk and is mixed together into the drum kit um steve rothery will have one or two microphones on his uh, um the loudspeakers of his backline will will be uh, what's coming out of those is picked up by microphones which are pushed up against the cloth of the the um of of his um guitar speakers you know maybe have Marshall amplifiers or whatever with speaker cabinets which have microphones up against them um why do you do that you might ask why don't you just plug the guitar straight in um the fact is that what makes a guitar sound good is usually the ampl- a combination of the effects pedals the amplifier, which is usually a valve amplifier, and the loudspeakers attached to it, and that 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 treats the guitar signal and makes it sound like a rock guitar. Um, and you then have a mic, even though that's incredibly loud. Sometimes you still have a microphone on the speaker to feed that to the mixing desk out front. Um, so there'll be there'll be maybe there'll be a couple of of inputs of electric guitar going to the out front desk there'll be a separate clean line that 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 will come from any acoustic guitars that Steve might use um these are you again usually via radio systems so that we don't have to have wires attached to the instruments sometimes and sometimes not um the bass will have two inputs. It'll have the it'll have a, a, again a microphone on the bass speaker cabinet, 
but also it'll that signal will be split so that there's a direct line from the guitar itself that goes straight to PA because basses often sound good just clean. You don't always need an amplifier. And the good thing about a clean sound on the bass is it can give it a bit of presence. Then Mr. Kelly um, will have God knows how many lines because we we usually have stereo loops in case he's triggering any loops like drum loops. Things uh, that you might hear if if you've listened to This Is The 21st Century or somewhere else or any of those songs that have um, have loops running as well as the drums. Radio Sunlight starts with a loop, doesn't it? It does. It does, famously. Um, and so he'll have stereo loops. He'll have stereo samples, which are for additional additional bits and bobs sometimes mm. we've got backing vocals on samples you know yeah. to, to 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 add to the backing vocals um he'll have then keyboards left and right he'll have um there's a click channel that comes out of mark's rig as well that that goes to any members of the band who, who need tempo references at various times of songs um so there's masses that comes off of mark and um who've i left out and then there's me um there's there's my my keyboards left and right are uh, a stereo i also have samples myself so i got two i've got stereo samples in addition to keep my my own uh, piano I've got a hammered dulcimer that I sometimes clang away at. There's that, that I think that's just a mono input, and then I have my own vocal mics, one one at the keyboards and one at front center. Hmm. So at four o'clock, I I go out there and I have a bit of a shooby dooby doo um, down the central front mic whilst Phil gets happy with the sound now he's usually already checked that it works he's usually already eq'd it um before i even show up because he knows how it should sound because he's worked with me for years so sometimes there's not a lot for me to do except just feel good that it's on he mm. feels good that it's on out front and I can I can maybe adjust a little bit my vocal sound by talking to the monitor man and say, look, I, I need, you know, I need, that needs to be a bit louder. I've got a bit of reverb on this lead vocal in my ears, hmm. which is separate to anything that's going yeah. on out front. I can set a level for that. Then I can go and sit down at the piano, do the same with the piano mic, make sure that the sound and the levels are the same from one mic to the other. Uh, in my ears, this yeah. is. Um, make sure I can hear what I'm playing. Um, have a little clang on the dulcimer, make sure I can hear that. Um, then I go through my guitars because I I have um, 
I have a number of guitars I play during the show, so I'll stick the record backer on and go with that and make sure I can hear it all right and that it sounds good. Uh, I'll stick whatever else I've, I've got. I've got a 12-string Rickenbacker that I used to use in the levers that goes... Uh, I'll check that that does that um, and that I can hear it. Then I have... Um, I have a, a Fender acoustic Telecaster, which is that sunburst one that I sometimes mm. play, and that sounds like an acoustic guitar. So that one doesn't go through an amplifier, that goes straight to PA. And uh, so I check that one for strumming along. Um, is that it? Oh, and then, and then if I'm using the cricket bat, I, I check that that's all on because I've got a cricket bat which is also a MIDI controller, a radio MIDI controller, and it's got little buttons on it. And when I press those buttons, it plays samples. Um some people still don't believe that that instrument exists. They think it's all miming and faffing about, but it it is a real instrument, and I do play it. Um, it's fraught with trouble um, because there's so much in that to go wrong because it's radio MIDI. Um, but it you know it tends to work. Nile looks after it these days, and he's he's done a good job of looking after it. Um, it's the same technology that I used to have in the way back, way back with the MIDI gloves. With the gloves. That it's exactly the same um, gubbins as I used to. I had switches in gloves that I used to use, but that was fraught with all kinds of hell because um, the connections used to come undone and I used to go mental. So the, a popular vote was taken to consign <laughs> the gloves to the bin <laughs> by, by everyone except me. Um, but um, even the cricket bat's fraught, isn't it? I mean, there's a reason yeah. why that technology is not taken off and everybody else uses it, probably. Yeah, well, it's a prototype, you know, and, and most prototypes are a bit iffy, aren't they? Um, once they're mass-produced by some big company who sells them in shops, they tend to work much better. Um, but nobody's <laughs> ever run with that as an idea. <laughs> um so I take the cricket bat and then I'm done. Mm. And then um, if I'm lucky, Pete Travis will have, will have managed to contain himself for long enough not to have got up on stage and started rumbling about while I'm doing that. Sometimes he just can't. And he, he's, and I go, Pete, can you just give me a minute? Um, so once I'm done, um, I I open the floodgates to the rhythm section. Ian Ian and Pete get up and have a knock and enjoy themselves for a bit, uh, whilst checking they've got yeah. what they need in their in in the in in their headphones or or, or any of monitors. And but they get they get happy with that, and then um, Mark might get up and just check he's got all. You know, we need Mark as well in sound checks because we need him to run loops, clicks. We need we need him to basically we need to run through a song with him to mm. check the the his rich array of possibilities <laughs> are are happening at a manageable level. Um, that that's not always the case, um, and so you, you you might occasionally have you know a situation where mark's done a bit of programming 
and um, accidentally uh, turned MIDI volume off or, you know, various other parameters that I neither know about or would like to know about. And uh, and random things happen, and either blow you either can't hear him, or, you, or he blows your head off. Um, so we just have to check all those things are okay. There's a lot to go wrong. Um, you know, there really is a lot to go wrong. It is it, it is like it is like um, being on the flight deck of a a jumbo jet or something, and and, and sitting on the tarmac checking. All the systems. There's, there's arguably as much. You know, I, I, I've often, I've often likened it to launching the bloody space shuttle. Mm. You know, our sound checks. It really is. Uh, in fact, there might not be as much to go wrong in the space shuttle, in terms of the sheer number of things that have to be checked and and have to be balanced and have, you know, any one of which can 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 ruin the show um so that's what sound checks are now when when i talk about checking the lines um i'm really just talking about all those lines of information just checking that they're on and working um if if they're all on and working then the only thing that can go wrong is that they're not balanced properly for each member of the band um if you're playing a place, if you're fortunate enough to, to be playing several nights in the same place, then you'll have done it, like at Port Zealand, for instance, you, you'll, you'll have done all the hard work at, on night one or on sound check one. And when you turn up the next day, in theory, it's all the same. Mm. So you just have to check it's all still on rather than set all the levels because they'll be the same. All the knobs will be in the same places. Um, so when I say checking the lines, it might just be that the crew do that. You might not even need the band to do that. It just depends really on the level of paranoia and neurosis of each band member. Um, if he's particularly neurotic, he might think, I'll feel better walking onto that stage if I know I've already had a knock and it all sounded good. Most of us are, are fall into that category <laughs> after years of doing it. So we we will usually always turn up for a sound check unless we really can't. And that's where there's this difference, isn't there? Because and and this is the two stage thing with the monitors. Because, like you say, anybody could stand in front of your microphone and sing or shout down it to check a signal is going to the front of house, so that yeah. it's, that, that something is coming out. Uh, it's been captured by the microphone and it's coming out of the speakers at the front. Mm. But that doesn't help you if you, you know, for the mix in your ears during a show that enables you to perform. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And those two things are quite different. So when you when you look side stage and point to something and then point up in the air or put that point down, that's nothing to do with Phil. You're, you're, that's going across to Nick, isn't it, to say, I need something changing in my in my mix that's right and you you de- over the years you develop sign language for yeah. that because you can't talk to each other um <laughs> i know why you're laughing um uh, <laughs> I, I don't often use rude signs because i tend to work with people who know what they're doing but you know i will make a little sign for a hi-hat you know this yeah 
um, and up or down, you know. Sometimes you need a bit more hi-hat just for tempo, especially if I'm uh, shaking tambourine. I'll probably have the hi-hat level lifted a little bit just so I can make sure I'm playing in that groove. Um, mm. Obviously, I need a lot of my own voice so that I can pitch uh, over the top of all of the, the uh, a noisy band. Um, but I don't want my vo voice so loud that I can't hear the band because then I've, I've got nothing to pitch to. Yeah. So I need them loud enough so I can sing in tune with what they're doing all the time. Uh, I need the percussion elements loud enough so that I can sing or, or shake my shit in time with what it's doing. Um, and I need a vocal sound which is clear enough and present enough so that I can be subtle and not just scream my head off for two hours. I, I do want to I don't want to. Uh, I want to be able to express feeling, um, and you know you do that with subtleties. So you need to be able to hear them uh, to know they're happening. Um, so that's that's really it. There's an awful lot to be mixed together just for my in ear in ears to make me happy. I usually have a a pretty hi-fi mix of the band with my vocal sat well above it. Mm. Um, but but a lot of the band use a um, I know Pete and I know Pete and Rollers. I don't know if Mark does use these Avium systems, don't they? So they have a little bit of on-stage control for their monitor mix. They do. Uh, they, they can do things on the fly. Yeah, they have their own little boxes with um, about. Yeah, about 10 knobs on yeah. them so they can yeah, turn awesome. drums up and down they can turn you know mm. if Steve's playing and he can't hear the keyboards he can just nudge them up or if I'm singing too loud he can nudge me down or vice versa um, I don't have that I place myself entirely in, in the uh, in the power of the monitor man yeah. and the reason I do that is because Quite often, I'm too busy to be twiddling any knobs, yeah. and my hands are too full. And it's not my job really to be twiddling knobs. It's it's my job to be performing. You know, if I'm uh, if I'm playing a cricket bat with both hands or a guitar, and I'm I'm uh, you know, and I'm I'm some I'm all over the stage. I'm not really in a position to keep coming back and fiddling with knobs. Um, so I don't. I don't get involved in that. I, I, um, I, I let the monitor man do that. And that's very freeing. But, of course, you need someone you really trust. trust. And that's the, I guess that's the point where you'll look and you'll point, you know, you'll, you'll point to something and point up and down on stage. And yet, if you're out front, you won't notice anything change. No. Because the only thing that's changing is going on in your ears. Yeah, the only thing you, you'll notice change out front is, is what Phil chooses to do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, that can result in, in, in a situation where 
the band all come off stage dismayed and fed up because yeah. <laughs> it's all sounded rotten. <laughs> and the people have all had a great night because it all sounded Sounds great. great. Yes. I've lost count of the number of gigs I've come off stage and wanted to hang myself. <laughs> and people have come back and gone, that was the best gig I've ever seen. And I'm just thought, what's the point? <laughs> Give me the gun. And, and that, and the thing is, in the diary all the time that you'll get that moment where you'll get feedback after the show when you didn't know exactly what the audience, you know, you knew what the audience reaction was. But I mean, I've sat with you after gigs and said, sounded great, sounded absolutely great out front, really, really, you know, really, really, um, mix was fantastic, sounded really superb. And, and yet you're not sure because what's going on in your ears, you've not even got much of a, of a feel of the room, have you? Because essentially you're fairly locked in for large portions of it to what's specific to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I learned very quickly after having adopted in-ears because I didn't always use in-ears. In the old days we used to use what they call wedge monitors, which are, which are clean, big, loud speakers that, that point up at your face from the ground. The problem with wedges is that they don't cut out the sound of the rest of the band. So you have to have whatever you want to hear loudest of all, you've got to have insanely loud in the wedges. And even then, sometimes you still can't get them over the sound of the band. Um, um, and we, so that, that was another whole world of pain. Um, but once I started using in-ears... The downside of using in-ears is that everything is, you know, much quieter, which is good up to a point, extremely dry, almost like studio dry, which is weird if you're in a big room because what the room that you're in and what you're looking at and, and what you're hearing are like two separate universes. Yeah. Uh, so I learned very quickly when, when uh, I adopted in-ears to, to dig one out. So... I usually leave the right hand one in um, for, you know, for accuracy. And I have the left one halfway out, which means it's constantly bloody falling out because it isn't quite in. So I'm constantly fiddling with it and putting it in and out and faffing with it. And then I lose it, it goes down the back of my shirt and, you know, sometimes I find it again and then other times Nick Todd will come leathering onto stage, stick his hand down the back of my shirt and give it me back. <laughs> if he can see, I can't find it. Um, so there's an element of... of you know, There's always an element of chaos in a live show. Um, but my sound is always best when my right, my right hand in here is all the way in. And the left one is is halfway out, so I'm getting a little bit off it, and I'm also getting the the, the room. room. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm in the room. And then if I have to sing something that's really quiet or delicate, I will just bash the left one in. You know, the side of my fist. If people seem that uh, it's not because <laughs> I've got some strange yeah. condition that I punch myself in the side of the head occasionally. Uh, Although I have and I do, um, it's it, it's to bash it's to bash the one that's halfway out into my ear for for, for something quite delicate. So so I've got something really accurate because um, you don't always want to be in the room. Sometimes you you, you want to be you, you, you with you yourself. Be in your head. 
Uh, but you don't want to be with yourself too long because your job is to be with, with the, the people. Right, well, that's... Do you know what? That's explained a lot. And some of that I knew and some of it's come as a surprise. But I think I think the bit probably is that whole thing of two things going on. That, 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 that's what, what's going on with you on stage is different to what's going out front and there are actually two jobs going on at the same time. There are two universes. Um, yeah. They really are. Yeah. Right. Well, I hope for people that's given them a bit of an insight. And the one thing I did want to quickly ask, we're all the way back to the bus, um, because obviously in the in the Brave sections, what you're doing a lot of time is you're, particularly if you've gone overnight on the on a bus, or the minibus, and then you'll check into a hotel first thing in the morning, go and get a shower and get freshened up. Mm. Where does that happen now? Are the facilities on the bus for that, or do you rely on the venue for that? Or Because you're not doing hotels as much, are you? No, what, what usually happens is um, it depends on the venue. A lot of venues have really good showers in them, um, yeah. and they're usually backstage in the dressing room, either in the dressing room or in the dressing room area. If if you're playing a nice venue which has been built, you know, any any time in the last sort of twenty years, then then it will have, you know, a really nice bathrooms attached to the dressing rooms backstage. Some of the older theatres, you know, I mean, last time we played Hammersmith Odeon, that was horrible backstage. It was a big old Victorian horror show, and people people sitting out. In Hammersmith Apollo's it is now seeing seeing somebody walk on stage, we'd just assume that they'd walked from this really opulent backstage area <laughs> with every mud car, <laughs> and it, it used to be ugly and horrible and dirty back there, and um, you were better off out front. Whether they've fixed that since all this live from the Apollo comedy stuff mm. that they've done there. I, mean, I can't imagine it's still as crap as it used to be. Well, was, you're going to find out, aren't you? I'm going to find out with a bit of luck later in the year. Um, the The backstage area in London Palladium's really nice. Mm. Anyway, to answer your question... <laughs> um, we Yeah, we, we'll sometimes go inside the venue shower in the venue and you know and then go to catering and uh, have some more coffee and bite to eat or whatever um certain members of the band i mean rothers just opens up a laptop and stares at it all day long and sometimes never moves out of the dressing room um god knows what he does i, th- I think he's just maybe reading or researching or plotting uh, i don't know what he's doing but he he does uh, he'll he'll sit and stare at a laptop all day long. Um, I can't really do that. Uh, Mark's usually out running. He usually comes back at some point with all his veins bulging, and gets in the shower. Um, Mosley just sleeps. If he's not on stage, he's usually in bed. Um, and I I'm all of the above except for the running, as I That's say. Um, so there are, but, but in addition to that, if the facilities at the gig aren't that aren't great, um, the promoter or the tour manager will book a, what they call a day room. We'll have a hotel room somewhere just, just to go and shower. Or sometimes Ian demands a day room because he just wants a decent bed to sleep in. 
Um, and that's not because he's spoiled. It's because his job, first of all, is you know his job is extremely physical. Drumming is extremely physical, and knackering, um, just as singing is. So in many ways, it's the singer and the drummer who, in our band at least, are the most physically exhausted human beings on a tour. You know, the rest of the band, you know, they contribute every bit as much in their own way, but it's not as knackering for them. Yeah. It's, a it's a different thing, isn't it? It's a, it's a different thing. You know, Mark just stands there pushing buttons and he looks like he's cooking. I mean, somebody, someone said to me years ago, keyboard players always look as they're in the kitchen cooking breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so there's about that level of of <laughs> of physical strain goes into it. Of course, Mark compensates for that by running 30 by running. miles around yeah. town each day. Yeah. He's better than the rest of us put together. <laughs> Right, well, let's disappear off into a bit of diary. Um, and that really is, that really, that does help. That helps join a lot of bit of diary and, and little phrases and odd things that you say. That joins it all together, which is great. So we'll, we'll go to diary, which I believe is going to have a bit of Spain and a bit of France in it. Um, and there's some, there's, I've got three questions to ask you because I've read it this morning. I've got three questions to come back to. So <laughs> we'll disappear off. Uh, to a bit of Spain and a bit of France. Lovely. Thursday, 21st of April. Madrid. Day off. Got up, packed, checked out, and after much dithering around trying to drop off the hired minibus, we arrived in Geneva Airport for the flight to Madrid. Sat around writing my diary. Mark had eventually restored my computer to sanity yesterday by reloading the system disks. Thank you, Jack. Flew to Madrid and checked into the Emperador Hotel. It was a day off, apart from a press conference at five, which went okay. No one asked me any outright dumb questions, a bit of an improvement on last time when I ended up throwing things. In the evening, we were taken out to dinner by Mite from EMI. We had paella for the main course. Mine had chicken and snails in it. Friday, 22nd of April. Madrid, Sala Cancile. Spent most of the day snoozing and ordering up room service. The weather was disappointing for Madrid. I'd been hoping for a hot sunny day. I had a nice room on the eighth floor with a chandelier and a balcony overlooking the red tiled roofs of the city. Left with the boys at 4.45. We drove in cabs to the outskirts of Madrid where the Cancillaire 2 was located. It seemed a long way from the centre. When we got into the place, it all looked like it was going to be a struggle. The stage was too small for our backline. The monitor desk was up on the balcony. Alan couldn't get all the lights in. The sound in the hall wasn't great. Backstage was cramped. The toilet was blocked. I was beginning to think I was back in Italy. Sound check was academic. I was standing sandwiched between the drum kit and my wedge monitors. Orally between a rock and a hard place. Tonight was to be a late show, 
on stage at 11, so I retired across the muddy car park in the rain to the bus for a snooze, wondering how determined the audience would have to be just to come here. By showtime, and to my surprise, a good crowd had gathered in the club. It was difficult to assess their mood until we hit the stage, but then it became quickly apparent that despite my own difficulties and misgivings, they were living and breathing every moment and every word. I'm sure the majority of the audience spoke little other than their native Spanish, and yet throughout the show their lips moved in time with mine. Without them, I would have had an unpleasant evening. My sound was so chaotic, I felt I'd fallen victim to some kind of endurance experiment. Afterwards, again to my surprise, the general feedback was that the sound on the floor in the club had been the best ever in the venue, although Priff said it wasn't great up on the balcony where he was mixing. What do we know? Security wasn't tight, and people kept appearing backstage to say how much they'd enjoyed the music. They'd come from as far away as the Canary Islands, Saturday, 23rd of April. Barcelona, Salsona, Sala Celsa. Struggled out of bed at 9.30, feeling badly beaten and quickly packed. We were leaving for the airport at 10. Managed to get a coffee in hotel reception before leaving. Decaffeinated. What's the point of that? Flew to Barcelona chatting to Nick and Mark. Barcelona Airport was built specially for the Olympics a few years ago and is tall, bright and airy with mature palm trees inside. I remembered from last time that it was my favourite airport. Of course, the blue sky and the open sunshine outside helped to bias my perception in this respect. Today is St George's Day. St George happens to be the patron saint of the Catalans, so everyone was out on the streets of Barcelona. Good for the vibe here, but not too good for the traffic, which was fairly well jammed. The road to the Hotel Le Meridien was blocked off, so we climbed out of the minibus at the nearest available place and dragged our suitcases across the cobbles and along the street that was teeming with people in the sunshine. Ian has developed a cold and says he couldn't get to sleep last night, so he was not in the best of spirits and in a hurry to check in and sleep. I was some distance behind him as he turned right into the hotel street and out of view. An explosion followed, and I knew instinctively that it was probably him. His suitcase had shattered one of the glass doors. Cool as a cucumber with a sore head, he didn't even slow down, just glanced behind him and walked up to reception to check in. I arrived at the hotel lobby to find hotel staff sweeping up crystals of shattered glass. Very rock and roll. Went back out for a walk. Wandered through the covered market and tried in vain to find a restaurant with tables outside. I was hoping to have lunch in the sunshine. In the end, I returned to the hotel and ordered a club sandwich from room service. Tonight's show was a really late one, 1130 and we were playing a long way away from Barcelona in a place called Salsona. We'd decided to sound check 30 minutes before the doors were opened at 9.30 in order to maximise our time in Barcelona, so we left the hotel at 7 for the 90-minute drive, which turned out to be almost two hours. 
We drove north out of the city on the motorway and then on to narrower, winding rural roads. After an hour, we were winding through green fields of spring barley, reminiscent of the English countryside, but with peculiar, brittle, Colorado-like rocks on the horizon. A strange juxtaposition of landscapes, dreamlike and almost unearthly. We began to climb up towards the mountains, and eventually the Pyrenees came into view, barren and snow-capped in the distance. By now it was hard to imagine more than a shepherd and a couple of mountain goats turning up for the gig. It was hard to imagine a gig. By the time we arrived in Salsona, perplexity reigned. Salsona appears to be a medieval walled town at the foot of the mountains, populated by farmers and country folk. What are we doing here? I couldn't imagine anyone making it out here from Barcelona, which by now seemed like another part of the world. I noticed occasional posters at the roadside and in the village announcing not only our show, but at the same venue next week, Iggy Pop. I would like to know what goes through Iggy's mind as his boss winds into this place. A rebel icon from New York City, strutting in a mountain village. Paradoxically, the venue was great. A good stage size and a practical stage access and auditorium. It could have done with bigger dressing rooms, but there was hot water and there were showers. Bizarre. We sound checked and my stage sound was bliss. Jeff had re-EQ'd my wedges and all thoughts of Madrid left me. I went out for a walk through the old town and found a little bar complete with wood stove where the locals were watching a football match on the TV. Had a bite to eat and a beer while people asked for autographs and took pictures of me with their children or their girlfriends. Some of the boys were wearing Seasons End and Script t-shirts which were obviously homemade or purchased from the Spanish Mountain Retreat Bootleg Company. Returned to the venue for the show which by now was miraculously packed with about a thousand people. They'd been arriving on coaches from Barcelona. Everyone rushed to where I was standing backstage for autographs. In the end, I had to refuse to do any more because Wes was going on stage and no one was looking. Our show went really well. Everyone was singing along again and in the general euphoria, I bit off a bit more than I could chew and couldn't quite manage the end of the space. Never mind. After the show, which wasn't over until 1.30... I signed another 50 or 60 autographs before showering and climbing onto the crew bus to go overnight to Toulouse. There were still kids hanging around waving when the bus pulled away at four o'clock. Nobody seems to sleep in Spain. Sunday, 24th of April. Toulouse. Day off. Woke around ten. I had the feeling that the bus was slipping a little and thought we might be in snow on the mountains, so I got up to have a look. To my surprise, I looked out of the window to see the centre of Toulouse. We were already here. Steve R was already up and about as the bus stopped outside the crew hotel. Mickey Dean, the bus driver, arranged a cab, which I took with Steve to the Grand Hotel L'Opera on the Place du Capitole. We walked down a paved passway and into reception. Dizzy Spell arrived here yesterday and was probably enjoying a well-deserved lie-in. I freshened up and put some decent clothes on in the toilets downstairs. 
These are actually built on an old stone spiral staircase. Only the French could contemplate such a conversion and then pull it off with such style. Ordered breakfast and took it up to the room, hoping to fool her into thinking I was room service. When I emerged from the lift at the second floor, I could hear her voice through an open door. She was already up and chatting to Steve and Joe next door. Another romantic notion bites the dust. Oh, another breakfast, she said. Never mind, it's the thought that counts. Spent the rest of the morning saying hello and the afternoon out walking in the sunshine in Toulouse. I've been looking forward to coming here again. It's one of my favourite places in the world and my first choice in the event that I'm ever given the freedom to live anywhere I choose. I would learn the language and move in. We bumped into Priv, Smick, Alan and Adrian, enjoying a glass of wine in the Place Wilson. Priv has finally completed on his new house back in England. As a tribute to the size of the mortgage, he says he will call the cottage the Millstone. Later in the afternoon, it came on to rain and rained for the rest of the evening while we ate at the excellent Indian restaurant in the hotel. Overdid it and went to bed in pain. Got up again and spent an hour writing sleeve notes for the forthcoming release of Mike Hunter's brave intro ambient music, later to be called The River. Went to bed around 2.30. And we're back! (laughs) Uh, and uh, a nice little section of diary there. And the first thing I'm going to ask, because it's in the very first section of the diary, you talked about the fact you're in Madrid, you got a day off. Uh, the only thing you had to do was a press conference, which was better than last time because last time you ended up throwing things. <laughs> How often do you throw things in press conferences, H? You used to be more than lately. I mean, right. but to be fair, don't, don't do a lot of press conferences these days. There's always some twat at a, at a, in a press conference, you know, that doesn't know anything about yeah. anything. And and normally these are the guys who work for the biggest publications, which is you know, the opposite of what you'd expect, isn't it? But as far as music's concerned, the bigger the newspaper, the less of a clue they've got. Um. You know, so you might get some kid from a fanzine who <laughs> knows every last thing about you and your music and asks you five really intelligent questions. Then you'll have some tosser from the Daily Mail who'll just go, what happened to fish? You know, that, that'll be the level of understanding and um, creative journalism you're dealing with. It was like that for years. Um, and, of course, I expected it when I joined the band, so I was cool with it. But ten years down the line, I was starting to think, hang on. Should have stopped by now. Should have stopped by now. And then 20 years down the line, I was thinking, you know, I should have stopped by now. And in 30 years down the line, it, <laughs> it kind of has. <laughs> but it has taken this long. Um, so even the Daily Mail... Don't don't ask me what happened to fish. 
not a question one anyway. You know, they they usually work their way around to it and I can sense it's coming. Um, and my stock answer is now that I've been in this band so long, I, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you'd be forgiven for throwing anything at somebody from the Daily Mail. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, I don't know why I picked the Daily Mail, but... Th- Different publications have a different function. So some magazines function entirely to tell you of what gauge the guitar, what gauge strings the guitarist yeah. uses, and then other publications function entirely in the hope that you'll confess to having slept with an actress, you know, and that's their, that's what sells their publication. None of their readers give a damn what gauge guitar strings the guitarist use they just want to know if you've done anything particularly uh, outrageous or whether your kids are dying from a terminal disease that's what they're after because that's their gold i mean it's pretty depressing but it is that's that's the pond that's the pond that they're swimming in and then you get and then you get other people, people like um, Prog Mag and Classic Rock. They'll they'll be more interested in the music, you know, and, and in the words, in the words I've written to some degree. So they'll ask you intelligent questions. At a press conference, you'll just have a mixture of all those people in the room. So you just got to brace yourself for there being Whatever's at least coming. one idiot. The good thing about a press conference is that you get it all out of the way in one go. Yeah. Because it's, it, it can be frustrating when you're doing promo. Um, first of all, most journalists prefer an exclusive interview because they all think they're going to ask you something that no one else is going to ask you and they're going to get that one piece of gold out of you. And ironically... W- that they they tend to file into the room one by one and ask you the same five same questions, questions. <laughs> and yeah. by the end of the day you've answered the same five questions so many times you, you you're on autopilot and you don't even know I don't I have to keep stopping and saying have I said this to you already and they go well yes you know or they go no I go oh, okay I'll keep going because you you start to lose track of who you've said what to and you know and you just you're on autopilot. So a press conference saves you eight hours of your your life. But every once in a while, you just have to throw something. Uh, I've calmed down a bit. Um, The other bit in the diary that's just brilliant is that whole section where Ian essentially destroys a glass door (laughs) um, and then owns it. Just absolutely owns it by just carry on as if nothing's happened. Only him. I, I mean, that's just wonderful. I do remember that still pretty clearly. Um, he'd caught a cold, so he was very grumpy. Um, when you're worn out and you're hundreds of miles from home and you get a cold, that's bad enough. But when you know you've got to get up that night and do something really physical and accurate and you're worried that perhaps you'll you'll screw up because you're not feeling very well, that adds to the pressure. Um, so he was grumpy 
And to make matters worse, um, Nick couldn't get the bus to the hotel because of the layout of, of the town. The hotel just happened to be on a, like a cobbled square and the, there was no, it wasn't open to traffic. So we had to park as close to it as we could. And then we had to walk around the corner. <laughs> now that's a first world problem, I'll grant you. <laughs> But you're trundling, you're trundling your bags and your suitcases behind you uh, along the cobbles and they're rumbling and banging and you're thinking, oh, I've got all my stuff and I'm knackered and, oh, God, if uh, you know, good, I've not had any sleep last night. And no, 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 no. Anyway, Mosley had the cloud over him and you don't want that. I know from experience... I recognise it when it happens and you're better off going to a neighbouring part of town immediately. Country. (laughs) (laughs) And he was in front of me. I was wheeling my bag along and he went round the corner and so I saw him him disappear. I could hear all the cases rumbling and I'm walking along and I just heard this God almighty bang. Tinkle, 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 crash, 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 glass, 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 glass. And, of course, I couldn't see what happened. I just heard the, this enormous bang and I thought, that's Ian. That's definitely Ian. Um, and I walked around the corner and, sure enough, there were just all these uniformed sta- hotel staff with sweeping brushes, <laughs> brushing shattered glass. Um, and uh, I kind of picked my wife through the glass and th- through the what remained of the door uh, to see Ian checking in. He just walked straight to reception and asked for a room as if nothing had happened. Uh, and they gave him a room and he got in the lift. <laughs> um, and I think what had happened was... It was probably one of those doors that opens outwards instead of inwards. And and he just picked his case up, you know, and threw it at the door to open it, which was made out of toughened glass and was about 12 feet tall. It was one of those really tall ones. And the whole lot just came down like a waterfall of glass. And he just walked through it and checked in. <laughs> I love that. I think that's brilliant. One of Ian's finest moments there. He's he's only done that once in all the time I've known him. We need to get him on to ask him about that. <laughs> tell us about that story. If he's calmed down by now. He'll tell you it was shoddy craftsmanship. That's what he'll say. <laughs> and then lastly, and very quickly, because we've we've been going on for quite a long a long time. <laughs> Um, that venue in Solsana, though, so it was about an hour and a half oh, outside wow. of Barcelona and, mm. and turned out to be an absolutely incredible venue. That was mad. That, that I remember that really. The Goat Village, we called it, because we drove out of Barcelona for about an hour, an hour and a half, up into the mountains, and we eventually came into this tiny little, I don't know, like a fortress village. Up up this mountain, there were goats wandering about in the street. That's why we call it the goat village. 
And there was a poster on the wall advertising an Iggy Pop show. I remember looking at it. I could I could no more imagine Iggy Pop in this village than I could imagine. In fact, I can imagine him on the moon a lot easier. <laughs> what on earth? Yeah, who the hell? What's go, what, what on earth is going on here? But there was some genius <laughs> in this village, um, in in you know outside Barcelona and on the top of a mountain, who who had built this amazing venue. This, you know, really nice hall, the kind of hall that, that, that most cities will be proud of. Mm. And we were booked in and it was on the circuit and you could see from the posters that all these, you know, famous cats had played there, even though it was in the middle of nowhere and had goats wandering around. Um, Salsona. And there was nobody in this village. It was There was just a few old Spanish leather-faced codgers sitting about yeah. <laughs> the brandy at seven o'clock in the morning the good look watching this shiny tour bus go hang on all that would be more of them musicians than they would have said in spanish i can't do the accent obviously with a bristolian accent who yeah. <laughs> <Ooh>, are <laughs> and um we 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 got to this gig and we well nobody's gonna come here it's miles from anywhere and um, we sound checked and then and then we 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 tiddled off again in our mini buses to to somewhere and when we got back the place was heaving and so it's just everybody knew it was there and people mm. drove to it that was an amazing gig we had a really good night there thanks brilliant. And what a nice place to stop for this week. So we'll call it a day. It's a bit of an epic, this one. I think this is going to be like an hour and 20, this one, when it comes oh, no. comes out, looking at the time. Um, but no, that's uh, that's a really nice way to... A really nice way to end. Are you uh, are you heading in today? Are you doing a have you got 20-minute jam going on today? No, it'll be tomorrow. We've, right. got, we've settled into not doing Mondays now because Mike comes down from yeah. up north and plugs everything in and he's got a lot of editing to do. So he's asked us if we don't mind uh, knocking Mondays on the head. You can imagine the fight he had on his hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'll leave you to the rest of your day. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll catch up with you next time. Well, have a good day yourself, love. I will, I will. You take uh, care. Uh, yes, thank you for listening, everybody. Crooncast to follow. Not a lot of newbies this week Apart from Anthony Reed, Who could also be called Rayad Thank you, Norman Lowe Mind how you go I've got to say sorry to Helena Barton Who I called Helena Which made her cross I also got a note from Lorena Coons, who I called Lorena, 
which rhymes with Helena but not Helena I'm gonna change key so thanks again Anthony Reed or Ayad or Ahaid Great. And thank you very much, Norman Lowe, who has a name I can almost certainly pronounce. It's great to be purple. It's great to be purple. It's great. To be purple, don't you think? Well, that's it. Good night, sleep tight, lots of love, turtle pip. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.